Hey, and welcome to All Things Renovation with Brandy the Boss Lady and Paul the Wood Magician. We're a fun-loving couple who eat, breathe, and live all things renovation, and we'll be your hosts on this podcast. We created the podcast to help you take a confident role in your renovation dreams and get your project done right, on time, on budget, and with quality craftsmanship. Welcome to today's show, everyone. Environmental hazards are a real thing in construction. Asbestos, leads, oil tanks, to name a few. Typically, in a renovation scenario, contractors should be arranging for sampling to get done through a certified company to take samples in a safe manner. Uh, Underground storage tanks became a thing a number of years ago here in BC as it was related to real estate and if you couldn't sell your house if you didn't declare and all that kind of stuff. And and then we had to start declaring that on, like, like I say, any sale. And then it ended up turning into that you had to remove one um, before the closing, um, if you did happen to have one. Um, and then I think that was primarily because uh, there was a whole ton of uh, soil contamination issues. Um, and today I have Laura Pedersen, who owns Lotus Environmental, and we're going to dig into some of these topics. She attended Kwantlen Polytechnic University and completed the Environmental Protection Technology Program. And that's not a mouthful, holy smokes. Um, and upon graduation, she was awarded the designation as Environmental Technologist. ASTTBC is uh, the regulatory company that she holds her professional designation through. And she also holds professional designation through Eco Canada as an Environmental Professional, an EP, specializing in waste management. As part of her career in professional development, um, both those regulatory bodies require that she continues to expand her career through certifications and different courses. Um, And she's also become a certified building inspector specializing in hazardous materials. And uh, that's the (laughs) A-H-E-R-A. Building inspector. Yeah. And she started her company a little over nine years ago as a single mom and now has three employees. So rock it out for you. Wow. Um, and she's become somewhat of an expert in the field of underground storage tanks um, with over a decade of experience in the soil sampling and remediation of sites and has consulted with um, over 700 removals over this time. So welcome to the show, Laura. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Randy. Thank you. All right. So um, I know your company does uh, a whole bunch of other things, including oil tanks. So I just want to get through a couple of some, some of the more basic things that most homeowners would go through. And then we're going to get into the oil tank stuff. So who and when do, or well, who, who contacts you and when should they be con- contacting you to do some sampling of whatever it happens to be? Or hazardous materials, do you want to Yeah, talk? like in a, in a, from a resida- residential renovation standpoint. Um, the homeowner, <clears throat> excuse me, or the contractor. Uh, a lot of, um, say, do-it-yourself renovations. There's been some times where I've got calls from WorkSafe BC where a lot of people don't know that even as a homeowner, if you were to do something yourself somewhere down the line, you're going, your material, if it's not properly sampled, it's going to be in the hands of an, an employee. So right away, even a homeowner is on the hook for having this hazardous material survey done. It doesn't matter how limited the scope of renovation is. Um, it still does need to be completed. And when you say that at some point, pardon me, it's going to be in the hands of an employee, we're talking about even just someone who's at the disposal. Exactly. Um, yeah. 
not just you putting the stuff in the gar- garbage bag for yourself. It's actually somebody else is going to handle that at some point. So that's someone's going to be picking up that garbage. Someone's going to be moving that garbage and then it's going to be moved again. So yeah. somewhere down the line, it's called like a downstream system. Yeah. Um, I have something to read to you so everybody knows what that is. A lot of times people think hazardous materials or doing a survey is just based upon asbestos, but hazard- hazardous materials is lead, asbestos, polychlorinated biphenyls, chlorofluorocarbons, uh, silica, that's the new up and coming thing because silica is like an asbestos fiber when it enters your lung, it has one of the barbs on it and it hooks the same way an asbestos fiber does, so it's just as harmful as asbestos. Where, where, where is silica found normally in? In, in concrete. Concrete, okay. Concrete and like concrete building materials and everything, so when you know, you're walking by a construction site and you're just walking down the street and they're breaking down the foundation of a house, that is being released into the air. Gotcha. So, you know, more and more awareness is happening nowadays where there's more and more policies and procedures put in place to protect the environment, protect the workers and to protect homeowners and just the general public. So So, so once somebody gets this report done or gets sampling done, like who is it that, that, comes and does the sampling. I mean, it, you used to be able to take a sample in yourself and now more and more, you're not really allowed to do that. So I think they're typically the, the work, so this work safety C guideline, I'm gonna read it out. It's called regular, the work safety C occupational health and safety regulation. This is a mouthful, 20.112 states that before work begins on the demolition or, or salvage of machinery, equipment, a building or structure or renovation of a building or structure, all employers responsible for that work and the owner must ensure that a qualified person inspects the machinery, equipment, building, or structure, and the worksite to identify the hazardous materials, if any. So right. that's a big so, encompassing statement that says that everybody is liable. Yeah. So who 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 is this like the qualified person? Uh, in the work safety right. manual, there's a list of credentials of different types of people, whether it's a certain certified safety professional or myself and here a building inspector but it's not just a matter of whether you have that credentials you also have to have the experience behind it as well so work safety c would come in and look at a person who did the sampling and or whether it's the homeowner or the person who's sampling and be able to determine that they are qualified to do so yeah so my, my understanding within the the confines of that is basically that you just need someone who has certification and they know how to to take proper sampling and usually like with an asbestos I know um, you know they'll take a little bit of drywall compound and they'll cover it up with some duct tape and they'll put a number on it and they float and within all of the sampling they have like line items about where the sample was taken from and all all that kind of stuff which then leads into um, the report that we get so within the report there's a number of sort of like entities within it that are really important can you maybe just hit on a couple of the, the biggest ones that we need to look for when we get a report. Absolutely. So each report usually is broken down into sections on safe for asbestos. So when you find asbestos in there, you need to have a qualified abatement professional to come in and, and properly remove the asbestos. Lead is the same as de- depending on the level of lead. So WorkSafe BC has manuals for asbestos, has a manuals for lead, and then you have other substances, say um, PCB light ballasts, the little fluorescent light ballasts. 
So those are things that you can basically almost inspect yourself yeah. and, and see whether if it says non-PCB containing, you're good. If it is PCB containing, there's certain, um, what's my word I'm looking for, facilities that take those materials, yeah. whether it's an old fridge or it's mercury tubes for the, the light tubes or the PCB ballast. Right. So this, this report that we would get is yeah. kind of what I'm getting at. So within that, the reports that I have seen uh -huh. will have um, a percentage noted of what the material is, whether it was containing, not containing, if it's containing, there's like yeah. a percentage level. Um, yeah. And then there's some guidelines around, well, we've found it here. So we need to assume that it's like in this whole area. Like there's usually some um, language or jargon around a little mm -hmm. bit of direction or assumption that we need to work within or, or work under. Yeah. Um, and I mean, my guess is that that's kind of the same no matter whether it's asbestos or lead or contaminated sites. Yeah, basically, like um, there's like a, a a guideline or like, you know, for the reports themselves, no matter who does them, you know, they all have to sort of say where the sample was taken from and then what the sample was as far as if it's containing it was, yeah. and what the percentage amount of it is, whether it's flooring or whatever, right? So um, is that pretty much standard through the industry of what? 100%. There are, there are some materials like mold doesn't have a standard yet, um, but asbestos, anything above 0.5% is considered containing unless it's vermiculite. So any trace amount of vermiculite, it doesn't matter. It's a different type of fiber. It's called actinolite. If there's even a trace amount, it's automatically containing. It doesn't have a threshold. Um, lead. Health Canada has a 90 milligram per kilogram, which is PPM. However, WorkSafe BC views any concentration of lead is still lead containing, and you just need to build your work procedures around that concentration that's in there. So you have some people that work in the lead industry that's very high content of lead versus, you know, you're taking down a painted surface that's on drywall that's only got like 15 parts per million. It's a very low risk activity. And contaminated sites has about 9,500 different standards that you can look to that you have to compare. So it just depends on the parameter and what type of contaminant it is. Right. Yeah. Okay, so after, after we get this report and we, and we hire a, a qualified person to abate and in another episode of I talked with somebody who, is, is exactly that person. So I, I will put it in the show notes what episode it was. I can't remember what it is now. And we were oh. talking more around asbestos. But um, so after this abatement is complete, um, why would we do air monitoring? And what, what exactly are we measuring or monitoring with that whole process? Absolutely. Um, now, air monitoring is a requirement for high-risk jobs. So there's different, there's moderate-risk work procedures for abatements for asbestos and then there's high risk that are basically materials that are stucco textured ceiling um, vermiculite vinyl sheet flooring so even within asbestos they have their own category of, of level of risk associated to it so my job as air monitoring i do that for abatement companies for one it's to make sure that what they're doing is they're completing their job properly and their work procedures are efficient in mm -hmm. protecting the public. So I have 
daily air monitoring that I do, which is your ambient sample, which is your outside sample, your clean room sample, which is they have a three-stage decontamination. Your clean room is where they've already washed off, rinsed themselves, and now they're hitting this room to make sure that no fibers are being released into that room. And then I have an occupational sample that they wear on them that ensures that their mask protection is adequate enough for what's coming down on them. Now, so that's just one level of air monitoring that I do. The next level is at the very end, I do clearance sampling. Right. So the clearance sampling is to ensure that the air that is clear is good for normal work activities to, to commence. Because most people, after they do a full gut on the inside of the building and they're doing a renovation, you just have carpenters come in, you have electricians come in, you have all different subtrades come in. Now, if you haven't cleared that air, they have no idea that they're walking into, they could be walking into a hazardous environment. Right. Yeah. So it's kind of like the, like what we were talking about earlier too, just like the downstream yeah. effect of, you know, we, we, we know we had this sort of contamination mm -hmm. containing material um, and now we've removed it, but we also want to make sure that anybody else from that point forward is safe. Absolutely. And just to add to that, there's a lot of jobs that are moderate risk jobs that the homeowners want that extra additional layer of insurance that they're what they're coming into because they're not required to do air monitoring. It's like a keeping mind factor, right? Yeah. Like for myself, if I was having an abatement, I'd be doing air monitoring afterwards because I'd want to make sure that my air was okay because I've got a 10-year-old daughter. I have a father with COPD. How do we determine... Um you know, low, medium, high risk. And I know that, that we have that within um, asbestos, but is there other materials that that's within too? Like you talked about lead having a certain threshold and whatever, like, is it really just the asbestos that has the high, medium, low risk sort of thing? Mm, yes. It's high, so you have to do it the highest. It's kind of called something different in other areas. So lead does have those kind of, it's a risk level that's associated with it. And then contaminated sites has different soil classifications. So you have your RL soils, which are residential levels. You have your commercial level soils, if those standards, and you have hazardous waste. Right. So each level of soil contamination brings a different, and it also depends on where that's going to the soil disposal facility is the type of class of waste that it is. Right. Okay. So this this is a great segue into underground storage tanks let's, yes. let's sort of back up a little bit um with this so um i mean why is underground storage tanks like what what is the big deal with them like some people are like oh who cares we'll just fill it in with sand or you know whatever like like what is the deal around this so you're kind of you've been like over 700 <laughs> removals so you just let it rip like what 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 is the big deal why is it it sort of started in the first place and then um you know, like really what, what is the concern around it? Well, there's a bunch of different concerns that comes to underground storage tanks. For one, I've seen tanks in, in say the Point Grey area. They were in as early as 1910. You know, I pulled that out like five years ago and it, this was probably my biggest site for contamination. There's definitely averages of how far, if, it, if the, the tank is leaked, how far, has the contaminant plume migrated but this one was large because it had 
there's a sandstone layer underneath because they're so close to the beach. The tank had been in for over a hundred years, so a century. Yeah. Massive tank, and it just been leaking. It leaked across four lots. Oh my goodness! So it basically, and it was very close to. As you say, for those who don't know, it's like these underground tanks are like for oil, for heating. Your yes, sorry. Oil. Let's start out with that. So approximately in 1950s is usually the the standard for when the underground storage tanks were used. So it could could have been done earlier. It was just really based upon what area you lived in, whether you could afford to put in and use oil to heat your home. I found that like Point Grey area, British properties, they have a lot of early, early tanks. Now, a tank shelf life, they say, is usually like 15 to 25 years. I'm just giving so a ball. it's been in the ground for 100 years. We're having like... <laughs> exactly. So, but a, a tank shelf life, is the, it's the same thing. I did a paper when I was in university on um, the Washington big remediation site. And that's the, the contamination, that, the nuclear contamination that leaked into the, I think it's the Columbus River. So I did this paper a long time ago, so I might be a little bit wrong with my facts. But they put in single-walled tanks into the ground. And they leak nuclear waste. Because the shelf life, once the tank's in the ground, you have all your environmental conditions affecting it. So you have heat, cold, groundwater. Groundwater tables in the lower Vancouver, the greater Vancouver area, are fairly shallow. They're you know anywhere between one to two meters, which is exactly where the tank's sitting. So that water's hitting the tank, it's rusting, it's creating holes. A lot of people when in the 1970s, when we moved over to natural gas, converted to the furnace system. Well, those tanks just got abandoned in the ground. And yeah. most of them full of oil still. Some of them were, some of them were all used up, but most of them were still full of oil. And they've been leaking for like most of them now for probably they sort of leaking in the 70s or 80s for 40 or 50 years. Right. So, and what what changes how far the contamination moves is the hydraulic conductivity. So if you're in an air and it's how fast the groundwater moves and spreads out over the year, it's kind of like a tide, but it's underground. So it goes, the groundwater table goes up, goes down, and then it moves out a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more each year. So I always advise people like 10 years ago, you had a tank that came out. You might've been okay, but it may have not leaked, but you wait 10 years and you're looking at 40 or 50 tons of soil that you need to remove now because you waited that long. Yeah, and so basically what happens is the, or you can correct me if I'm wrong, I'm guessing here. Mm -hmm. No problem. The, the, the water or the, the tank rust, the, the oil starts leaching out, the water starts going in, it creates this big like soupy mess and then it just keeps on dispersing, 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 yeah. the, the tank gets. As, as the groundwater table rises and falls and water movement, it, 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 if there's holes in the tank, it goes in and out. When I go to a site and they open up the tank and it's full of groundwater, it's an indication to me that it's already leaked. Yeah, yeah. Open up a tank and there's nothing inside of it and it's still dry. You're like, okay, you're probably in good shape. But there's other factors that that affect how far, if there is contamination and the plume, how far it's going to migrate. And that's, you know, soil type. If you have your tank nestled in a bed of clay, like back in the day, they used to believe clay was impermeable, but science proved that it is not impermeable. Um it doesn't migrate as far as it would in the sand and gravel scene. So there's some pretty notorious sand and gravel scenes in Vancouver, and those tend to be the sites where the contamination has migrated the furthest. So how, how do we go, or how do you go about um, conducting your sampling? Like, do you just 
like I, I don't even know how that's done like what's the process like what do you do you just dig oh. a hole and take a sample like soil sample or like what's the deal so through the bc ministry of environment they have uh site characterization and soil sampling like protocols and what you should follow and the sampling from each excavation phase so like when the tank comes out there's the north south east west base so when a tank comes out of the ground and usually it's it's through a permit like the city of vancouver you have to get an underground storage tank permit maple ridge new west some of them got rid of the permitting process um there's a there's a bunch more as well city of burnaby so you have to apply for the permit to remove it because it's it, it is definitely something that the fire department is very concerned about because those fuel lines are still attached to the house okay so i gotta back up because i, I lost yeah. my train of thought there Sorry, can you remind me what we give for the question that you had? We're talking about how we go about getting sampling. So, like, do you oh, do it right. before the tank is taken out, or I just heard you saying like once you take it out, you have to you know test around it. Yeah. So uh, I start out with five assessment samples, and those assessment samples will either become closure samples or indicate that we need to do a remediation. So, so is, that, is that before or after you take the tank out? After. Okay, so you so as a homeowner, I have a tank. Yeah, we need to remove it. I hire a company. We're going to remove it. They take it out. Then you guys come in and you do the sampling, um, basically right. the box right <laughs> around, and then like from like what is that sample? You just basically take a shovel and pretty yeah. much, pretty much. So the contractor will have to get it tested, and then it's, yeah, you've got you know basically con contamination of oil then you know that's the case so then what you just keep on going with wider and wider margins as we get rid of the soil or how does that happen yeah so for the step for you hire a tank contractor tank come they come in they remove the tank i come in as a consultant take the soil samples i then send those off to a certified lab to see what the levels are right so there's a standard um that needs to be below or above in bc and that is a thousand parts per million and, but but saying that, that's also that's just a standard because I've come into sites before and I've taken a sample and it might be below a thousand. However, I see the tank condition. I look at the groundwater. I look at the soil type, and it's like we got to dig a little bit further to ensure that it hasn't migrated further away from the source because it will migrate further. Hmm. Okay, so those soil samples come back and say they're all over. They're all over the standard. At that stage, it's now deemed a contaminated site as per BC Ministry of Environment, I would need to notify the Ministry of Environment and let them know that we're gonna start an independent remediation on site. And that's something that I do as well. Now, at that time, those results go away to a soil place um, to apply for a soil manifest. So you need to manifest the soils through this company who also has an agreement with the BC Ministry of Environment for soil relocation. So everything's kind of tracked. Right. And then at that stage, it's the, the method that we use. It's the simplest method. It's, you know, if I had x-ray vision that I could see how far oil went in the soil, I'd make a lot of money, yeah. but I don't. So it's, you just basically dig until it's gone. And sometimes it's, it's usually a very clear indication because the soil gets stained. There's a smell, there's an odor, and then you start cleaning and you can see it go back to its natural native color. Okay. And then at that stage, I would take more samples to confirm that the, the contamination at the margins where we're good and the contamination is gone. Yeah. And at that stage, 
we're done the, the remediation, I usually write my report based upon that. And my reports go out to the city, they go out to the real realtors, they go out to insurance companies, they go out everywhere. That that's kind of like here's this 60-page report saying that this is what happened at site. There was contamination. We found it, we removed it, and now your site has a clean bill of health, so to speak. Right. So say um you know the 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 client or the, the person has the oil oil tank it's 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 you know leached oil and now it's across like four or five people's properties you, you basically just start digging up everybody's property until you until you hit nothing like clean not, not necessarily not like, necessarily you can get approval to dig on the other side but i would still have to notice that no no notify the ministry of environment it's called off-site migration so right. Second, but, but, but I guess what I'm getting at is, okay, I'm I'm an innocent bystander here as a neighbor. I don't. I never had an oil tank, and now I'm subject to this, you know, uh, contamination from my neighbor next door, mm -hmm. or two doors over. Mm -hmm. um, you may not even know this this answer, but like, what's what's their recourse? Um, now they have basically a property that has contamination. Is there like an insurance? claim or is it like you go after the homeowner of that place? No, under underneath the environmental legislation, like if there's a huge section in, in this contaminated sites regulation environmental law, and it's the polluter pays principle. So you as a neighbor would not be on the hook for that. That notice that I send in goes into the ministry of environment. It then like a lot of times you know it migrates on city property, right? But we can't do anything. They don't want us to dig on it. But if they were to come along and change a, a water main and they found that contamination they'll go back to the homeowner or the person's property that the contamination came from and then they'll get there on the hook for it at that time right so say um i'm selling yeah my house oil tank whatever we remediate mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. now the new person that bought that house they can't be on the hook for no for that so no. then then who pays for that it still goes back to the polluter pays principle. So it goes back to the original owner. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. It can get like these. Get pretty messy then. It can get really messy, especially when. <sighs> this is a good one to talk to. I, I know you have another podcast, um, but this is this is a very heated subject at times because. Sometimes people buy properties before or the realtors didn't have. A subject from removal or a tank scan wasn't done so they're trusting in that that they're buying a property and it's got a clean bill of health now this new law comes in that all realtors are getting tank scans done and this this has happened more times than i can count and there's a tank there they've bought the property not even knowing right so it can it can be held jointly retroactively or separately liable for that and it's all about proving your due diligence. Right. Okay. So, folks, if you're buying a new place, just get a tank scan done. <laughs> That's why my report is so good for because it'll say everything that happened. It'll right. say who the current owner was. It'll have the new the title for that time that I pulled it. I actually was involved in the court case that got thrown out, and I have another one coming up in November. I'm being an expert witness. Right. And the professional. For what has happened on site with these people going back and forth and all that. It is a nightmare. It really is a nightmare. Wow. Okay, oh. so after the soil has been taken away, mm -hmm. um, 
uh, we did talk just really briefly earlier on about like sort of chain of custody, like where does it go? Mm-hmm. Um, all that kind of stuff. So what, what happens with the soil that's now been removed? Where, where does it go? What happens to it? So depending on the class of soil, like if it's hazardous waste, they ship it out to Alberta and deal with it. Oh, Alberta, excuse me. So what, what do the Albertans do with it? But the other places they have like these holding cells on these sites and they actually will treat the soil. And once they treat the soil and bring it down to a level that's safe, they will reuse it somewhere or it'll go to the landfill. So is it, do you, do you happen to know what they do to basically rehabilitate the soil? I remember it from university, but just because I don't have to, I just know that they do and use a chemical treatment. Okay. A lot yeah. of time that it's spent in this cell where they're turning it and use, adding these chemicals. I'm and, just uh, imagining like a composter, you know? And basically, I think that's like in on a large scale composting, yeah. Yeah, okay, 100%. so, so it's, it's not like it just goes into the ground. Um, it, it could be rehabilitated and then re. Oh yeah, definitely. It is. It is definitely not. <laughs> That's good to know. Yeah, I feel better knowing that. Yeah. No, no, it's it's <laughs> properly re- like treated. So it goes to a soil treatment facility. So they do the same place. One place that we send ours to, um, they also treat water there as well. So they'll treat the soil and they'll treat the water and get it back to a usable state, and then dispose of it at that time. Okay. But that comes with numerous amounts of tests before they can even get there. Another whole slew of analytical tests. Yeah, I bet. Okay. Yeah. Well, okay. So is there anything else that I haven't asked you that we should be sharing with people about tanks and getting rid of them and anything, any nuggets that a homeowner really should be aware of that we haven't touched on? No, the one thing I really do want to say, and this is not for like, hey, call me after this. You can call anybody you want to, but this is one thing that I tell people all the time because I've been doing this for over a decade and the volume, if I look at how many tanks when I sampled, the soil sample results came back and they were okay, they were below the standards, no problem, to the percentage of tanks that are now leaking, it's changed drastically. And you know, 10, 15 years ago, you may have had five tons of soil to clean up. Now it's turned into 20 to 30 tons of soil cleaned up. And the more the years that go on, the more the inflation of prices. Like this last year, the soil disposal facilities, the cost of disposing soil, the price of the to send samples away to the lab, it's just it's ridiculous. Not that it's getting any cheaper. Plus, it's all trucked places. Yeah. So it's just do it when you can. It's, it's an investment to do it now, but to do it later. Yeah. So, I mean, basically, the word, the word of warning there is that if you do happen to know you have one and you're listening to this, is like, deal, deal with it right it'll away. It'll cost you some money, but it better now than later because it's going to cost you more later than it would right now. Trust me, it's not one of those things that are out of sight, out of mind. And that's and that's unfortunate thing. It's like, people bury things we don't see them we forget about them after i would forget about it and you can't see it so you think it's no harm no foul but it really is causing an issue to the environment yeah it has been for years yeah sorry something just popped into my mind because i have heard of this happening i don't know anybody who's done it but i have sort of you hear stuff i have heard of people just thinking that they can infill their tank with with sand so Maybe just touch on that because that's a no-no, right? 
Well, especially if the tanks already leaked. Say the tanks started leaking in 1990. And that's when that's when they were making rec recommendations to pump and fill it with sand. Okay. It was a recommendation from the municipality. I'm not going to name the municipality's name. But the recommendation was pump it and put this peat in it, which was actually a fabulous idea. However, um, the peat, because I've opened up tanks and saw a lot of um, peat inside. Well, the peat has now become hazardous waste because the oil absorbed it. Mm -hmm. And if you didn't put enough, it's kind of like when you spill water on the counter, right? This is my analogy. And you grab your bouncy paper towel, you don't grab enough. Yeah. You're not going to soap up all that water. Right. You have to have enough peat in the tank to saturate up all the oil. So it did help. And it was minimal, minimal in, impact of the hydrocarbons but it was still there so it was it was effective but it still wasn't very like as effective as it could be yeah, so that, that's not really uh, advisable now i can tell you that most sand filled tanks that i that i see there is maybe only about five percent that it was actually effective right okay so that all the sand the sand fill then becomes contaminated so now you've added like two three tons of sand fill that you've contaminated plus the soil that was already contaminated around it right all right well you heard it here folks <laughs> just get it out just get it out yeah all right so um i'm gonna have a, a number of resources in the show notes about all of this stuff that laura has so graciously provided to us um mm -hmm. and then before i close out the show um, I just wanted you to tell people how they could potentially reach you if they have some sampling they need done in their house or they've got this oil tank thing going on, whether it's a, even a contractor listening. Um, okay. Best way to, to connect with you. What's your company well, have, again and how, how best to connect with you? I do have a website and it's, um, oh my God, lotusenvironmentaldc.com. I don't even know what it is. <laughs> um, and then uh, my phone number is 604-307-5465. And there's that's, that's like the a, office number, right? Not your cell phone? That's, that's the office number, yeah. <laughs> and there is a, um, you can also, there's a contact form that's on my website that that's goes through and double bounces through 100 emails. <laughs> but I get it. Yeah. Excellent. Now, I always like to ask um, my guests a couple of fun questions um, at the end of the show. Yeah. Um, the first is, what would you like to change or renovate most in your own home? Oh. Oh, my own home? Yeah. Fortunately, I still actually rent. So uh, everything. I've been doing slow. I've, I've been here for a while. It's just that the market's too crazy right now. Um, so if it was your own home, what would you want to change the most? Oh, the kitchen. That's a good one. Kitchen. Uh, the floors. They're great, but they're not. I don't like the color scheme that they used when they did the renovations. I like grays and whites and things like that. Like it's, that's my jam. Okay. Um, get rid of the textured ceiling and ceiling tile. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the second question is, are you handy? And if so, what's your favorite tool? And even if you're not overly handy, what tool do you think would be the most fun to use? A chisel is my favorite tool. <laughs> I'm very handy. I'm very handy, except I have to tell you, and I tell this to everybody, I'm terrible with cars. 
terrible. It's like I can talk to you about any kind of contamination parameter, big words like tetrachloroethylene and <laughs> like all this stuff. But when they're like, and I'm a terrible sweeper. I cannot sweep for life. I just suck at it. <laughs> I'll vacuum anything, but I can't. So you need to have a vacuum. I vacuum everything. I don't even sweep. So. Okay, yeah, so I have a vacuum for every floor. But, so why, why a chisel? It's the best, handiest tool that I have, and a, and a blade. When I sample, like I just use them for everything, except I'm kind of hit. I hit my hands a lot when I use chisel and hammer. So, yeah. I grew up. My my dad. Um, just a little bit. My dad. Uh, I grew up with being around houses. My dad is a journeyman carpenter. Oh, unfortunately. This is probably why I'm even in this industry. He was building and renovating houses in the 70s. My dad has COPD. Oh. And I'm pretty sure it's from asbestos. Oh, no doubt. Yeah. yeah. So he can't hear, he can't see, and he can't breathe. Because oh. he didn't have any layer of protection. I watched him cutting up a metal railing with no <laughs> eyewear on this sparks flying every. I'm like, Dad, you should put some glass on. He's like, oh, I'm fine. You're like, okay. Well, you know, back in the day, it was like a mark of being like a tough guy. To oh, not 100%. And now it's like all these guys that I meet in the industry, and I meet a lot of older contractor guys that, you know, they've also changed their way from the way that they used to do things because their health, their health is suffering. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I always I say this a lot. I said, when we know better, we need to do better. And back mm -hmm. then, we didn't know any better. Now we do. Mm -hmm. and now we need to do better. Mm -hmm. And even though, sometimes it feels onerous or that it's kind of a pain to do certain things in a certain way. Mm -hmm. It really is for the betterment of everybody, not oh. only yourself, but you know, the people around you and like the downstream sort of impacts and all that kind of thing. So um, yeah, when we know better, we got to do better. Absolutely. Absolutely. Again, Laura, you know, it's been fabulous having you on the show today i i learned some stuff around oil tanks that's great hey. and uh for those of you listening and tuning into the show if, if you dig what you heard if you like what we're laying down be sure <laughs> to, uh, follow comment and, and and share of course uh with your friends and then check out some of our, our other episodes um also coming up we're gonna have um an oil tank removal contractor come in and we're gonna talk to to her which is fantastic two women love it um, Both named laura too yes and the other the other girl's name is laura um and uh we're, we're going to get into the nuts and bolts of how the actual removal is done so stay tuned for that one now for now well thank you brandy thank you so much for hanging out with us today and learning about all things renovation we hope after listening you feel even more empowered to take a confident role in your renovation dreams you can find all additional episodes and resources for All Things Renovation at our website, allthingsrenovation.com. And if you're ready to make your house feel more like home, you can contact us at woodbeart.com to get started on your dream project now. <laughs>